0: I've said this many times before. Uh, growing up, I didn't know what I wanted to do. But I knew I wanted to be a husband and a father. And Kathy and my girls let me do that. And uh, I just had a great time. I enjoyed it so much. And, and not a distant second to that is being able to teach here on Sunday mornings. It's something I really love to do. So thanks for bearing with me and being patient about that. I mentioned in a teaching a couple weeks ago that uh, I thought Footprints in the Sand was kind of a cheesy poem that I used to see in kitchen and bathroom walls. And my good friend Alan called me afterwards and he said, "Uh, Mike, I know you didn't mean anything by that, but sort of someone else might hear you say that because you're up front speaking and teaching and and they might think Footprints in the Sand isn't so good or, you know, you got to be careful there. And I thought, man, you know, that is so right. One, thanks for... Even raising it right, and too, you know, that might have affected some people. So I was thinking about it and praying about it, you know. And I came here to church last Sunday, and and my other good friend, Deneen, I don't know if Deneen's here this morning or not, handed me an envelope, and the envelope says, Mike, I wanted you to know I really got what you were saying last Sunday, and that's why I wanted to be sure you had this, and it's a footprints in the sand bookmark, (laughs) with the yellow sticky note that says, gotcha. So... Anyway, this has nothing to do with the rest of what we're talking about this morning, but uh, if you hear me say something, or the other teachers here say something that you think is questionable on Sunday morning, I would seriously invite you to call us on that. We've said as a church, we want to do what the Bereans did in Acts 17. We want to search the scriptures to see if those things are so. And also, we just want to be careful You know, Proverbs says that in the abundance of words, sin is unavoidable. And James says, be not many teachers, knowing that you incur a stricter judgment. So you know what that means? Teachers who speak a lot are going to be guilty of sinning with their words. God takes that seriously, and we want to as well. So all on the serious side, uh, I invite you to challenge me or others if you think something's out of bounds doctrinally or just practically but also it sure covet your prayers for the same reason that the things let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, both for me, for the other guys' teaching, also for us as a church, we want to take that seriously. Hi, Michael. Is everybody at home okay? Are the boys still in the hospital? Okay. So we can pray that the boys eat well so they can gain some weight and go home. Okay, that'd be a good thing. Hi guys, how's Abilene? This is a return that didn't take long you're not staying right (laughs) okay (laughs) okay well let me uh with that caveat emptor on the front end of things let's pray and we'll get into the word this morning father thanks again that your spirit's in us and at work if this thing of growth and truth transformation were left in our hands we would be in sorry shape thanks that you're originating this path to discipleship, becoming more like your son. And and might, Lord, the words of our mouth, the meditation of our heart, be acceptable, be pleasing to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the seventh, we're in the last of this series, uh, Things God Hates. So this is the last time you'll invite someone to church on Sunday morning and the first thing they see in their bulletin is God Hates in big, bold, black letters. God Hates and God Loves. You know, uh, to reference or to frame this, you think back to the creation account, the chapters 1 and 2 in Genesis, and you remember one of the referring, uh, refrains there is, uh, God saw what he did and it was good. And so the physical creation, the cosmos, the universe, the plants, the animals, etc. And yet when he gets to the creation of man, the one who would bear his image, that's the first time in that creation account that God says there was something that wasn't good. And the thing that wasn't good was it would be aloneness. And of course, God never meant for him to stay alone, right? Because it would be male and female, chapter 1, that would bear the image of God collectively in plurality. So God says that's not good. So of course, he puts Adam to sleep, takes the ribs out, and fashions Eve. And when Adam wakes up, he gets it, doesn't he, that, that she's like me but different. She is my complement. I'm now... Complete. I'm what God meant me to be in a way that I wasn't by myself before. And so, <clears throat> in this perfection of creation, in those early chapters of Genesis, God's perfection is represented not in Adam's singularity, but in the plurality that was man and woman. And that's what you see throughout. That God never intended mankind singularly to reflect Him, but rather that it would always be in plurality. So they go along happily, probably not for very long though, until temptation, you remember, is brought in in chapter 3. Eve eats the forbidden fruit. Adam follows her. And what God said would happen, happens, doesn't it? So He said, if you eat that fruit, you'll die. And so immediately as they ate, it says their eyes were open, but they're open because their fellowship with God has been cut off. They've died spiritually in that moment. But one of the first things that gets sown into this perfect relationship that was meant to reflect God and God in the Trinity, this unity in plurality, one in three, three in one, the Trinity reflected in Adam and Eve collectively. But now, not only have they died spiritually, but do you remember what happens immediately when God comes in to question them? Adam blames God and he blames Eve. So in other words, strife and discord are brought into this perfect relationship immediately. Strife and discord and friction and distance have now been inserted in the relationship between man and God and between Adam and Eve. And friends, that discord, that strife that was part of the fall, that's been with us ever since. It's one of the toughest sins to get around And it's the sin that God says this morning, we'll look at here in just a minute, that He hates. I want to summarize, uh, if you've been here or not been here, this is the seventh message in this series. So let's walk through real briefly the first six things we talked about. You Remember we said we're redeeming the language of God hating things. That not only does God love things perfectly that should be loved, He hates things perfectly that are contrary to His will and His nature. So does God hate pride? Me with haughty eyes, tipping my head back, looking down on you, not giving you or God the credit God says He and you deserve. Absolutely God hates pride. He hates haughty eyes. What does God think about lies and lying? He hates them. They're the trait of the enemy. Lying is the currency of the kingdom of darkness. And God said He hates a lying tongue. What does God think about the lives of the innocent being taken without cause? God hates when the blood of the innocent is shed. It says, God hates all of death, but especially the murder of the innocents. He hates, he said, hands that shed innocent blood. God hates hearts that devise wicked schemes. You remember we said that everything we say and do comes out of our hearts. And God says He hates when we are devising evil in our hearts, when the contemplation of our mind and our will is on evil. That's where it's going to take. It's going to end in words or actions that God hates. What does God think about feet? Our actions hurrying to evil. He hates it. God calls all people in all times to do righteousness. He hates it the deeds of darkness, that we do. He says God hates feet running to evil. Last week, does God hate false witness and slander? Absolutely. You remember God, we said, was the first subject of slander, and it was slander that brought Jesus into the unrighteous trial He faced before the Jewish leaders. God hates false witnesses breathing out lies. We don't have to wonder about these, right? These are softballs. You know, when we said when you start reading in Proverbs, the dad, Solomon, is making things as easy as he can for Junior. He's saying, here's some things God hates. And Junior's like, I get that, dad, I get that. These are easy. This wouldn't have been hard for the people in that day, nor should they be for us. Does God hate these things? Absolutely. Now, we're meant to bring that same sense of God hates to the theme this morning, God hates the spreading of discord or strife among those called to be in fellowship. God hates, Proverbs 6:19, one who sows discord among brothers. God hates those who spread discord among brothers. Now, compared to the other six things we've already looked at, spreading strife among brothers, and that would be friends, that'd be a marriage, that'd be family members, that would be the body of Christ, the church, does not sound as bad to you and I, probably, as these other things. That's why it's it's left as the last thing. And it wouldn't have sounded as bad to the Jews either. If you say, is murder a bad thing, I say, absolutely. Absolutely is sowing a little seeds of difficulty, is that as bad? And I'd say in my own mind, well, not necessarily. How big a deal is it? How far does it run? Etc. God wants to raise the sowing of discord or the spreading of strife in our minds, as he did the original audience, to this same plateau of the obvious nature of its hatefulness. And so it's the seventh and it's the last. And this is the point to which all the others lead. Now we'd say on every one of these other points, does God hate that? Absolutely. And we've talked about those things. And when we get to this seventh one, where the initial tendency might not be to treat it as seriously and as hatefully as God says it is, that's why it's there. God builds us up to get to the seventh one and says, I want you to think about this in the same way that you think about these other things that you'd obviously say are wrong, evil, wicked, hateful to be avoided. So, strife or discord among brothers is the introduction of some element of disunity, friction, misunderstanding that results in the disconnection, the alienation, the distancing of relationships that God means to be intentional and abiding. So, if you've got your Bible, uh, ESV is what we're reading out of this morning, but I just want to look at the words that God uses there. To spread to spread is to send out, to spread, or to let loose, or also to sow or to plant. This same word is used, for instance, God spread or sent out Adam and Eve from the garden. Same word. Noah sent out the dove from the ark. He spread, he sowed the dove, if you will, out of the ark. Pharaoh would let go the Israelites in the Exodus. He sent them out. So this word has to do with what are we leaving behind? What comes, what's the effect we leave with others? What are we sending out? What are the seeds that we're planting in the lives of others so that when we remove ourselves and go away, what did we leave behind? What is the effect that we've left on others? The discord or the strife, the Hebrew term here is used only twice in the Bible. The other reference is in Proverbs twelve or 10.12, hatred stirs up strife. It's a hateful spirit in me that stirs up strife or discord among others. The root word from which this word is used uh, means also strife or contention. And it's used this way, a dishonest man spreads strife. It's always negative, and it's only the wicked, the dishonest, the liars, etc. who do this. A dishonest man spreads strife. A greedy man stirs up strife, discord, animus, or friction. The kind of people that do this are not the kind of people you and I would say we want to be. Strife, this disunity. And it's sown among brothers. This would be a relative. It's an ally. It's a confederate. It's someone with whom we're meant to be in relationship. So if we expand or extrapolate or amplify, God hates when we spread, release, so the seeds of have the effect on others of, bringing division, distance, friction, contention, in relationships meant to be close and mutually affirming. That's what God hates. And that's what He's elevating for us through the six other things He's raising this up to that same platform. Some of the other verses that touch on this theme, all out of Proverbs, Proverbs 6, 12-14 include these, A worthless person, a wicked man with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. So think of the terms, the the, uh, adjectives about the kind of person who's sowing discord. Worthless, wicked, wicked perverted That's what God says about the person who's routinely sowing discord among others. Proverbs 16.28, It's a dishonest man that spreads strife. A whisperer separates close friends. You think of, uh, think of Shakespearean plays where the, the plot is going on behind someone's back and they're being told one thing sort of in a whisper secretly about someone else. And it's that whispering that sown the seeds of discord and separation in that relationship. Proverbs 17.9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love. That means we're not broadcasting the wrong someone did. We're covering it up. We're keeping it hushed up. He who repeats a matter, in contrast, separates close friends. We're repeating something that doesn't need to be repeated. And in so doing, we are effectively separating people who were otherwise close. That's what we've left behind. Proverbs 26.20, For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. It's It's verbally sowing the seeds of discord. If you take that away, the quarreling stops. The friction ends. So in the list of things God hates, He starts with the things that tend to be very, very easy for us to understand. No difficulty, no argument there. But on this one, God presumes that we'll think too lightly of it, and so He's orchestrated, He's put this literary device in place. You remember we've counted them out. We know that seven's the number of perfection. The seventh one will be the telling one. They all lead up to this thing so that we get God's view of, of the sinfulness, the wickedness, the heinous quality that God attributes to us sowing seeds of strife or discord in others. Like the others, probably none of us here would say I'm going out today to sow division in the lives of other people. We probably wouldn't get up and say that's what I want to be intentional about doing. Probably most of us wouldn't say I'm a wicked person I'm a dishonest person. And so this is what I'm going to go out and do today. But there's lesser versions of this, of course, just as there are the other six. So these are some of the ways that we can sow strife and discord. And before I even get there, let me, let me see if you notice this too. Seven things God hate, or six things God hates, seven are abomination. Of the seven things that are an abomination to God, three have to do with our words. Is that telling? Almost half. Of the seven things God says He has to this inevitably have to do with the words that come out of our mouth. There's no end to the destruction you and I can do, can bring about, can sow the seeds of by the use of our words. And Proverbs talks a lot about the use of our words. And you get to the New Testament, think of James, James 1 and James 3. You know, the tongue can set a forest aflame. There's no end to the destruction you and I can bring with our words. Conversely, our words have the power to build others up as well. So this is illuminating. Three of the seven have to do primarily with our words. You remember lies, false witness, and sowing the seeds of discord among others. All primarily about what we're saying to and about other people. So, some of the lesser variations on this theme unnecessarily repeating negative stories about others. We're sowing the seeds of thinking less about someone else when we do that. Do you know that you as an audience when unhelpful stories are being told about others? Do you know that you don't have to stand there or sit there and listen while people are repeating a negative thing about your brother or sister in Christ or someone else? You don't have to be an audience. You can say, excuse me, and go away. Do we try to make ourselves seem bigger and better than others by speaking ill of others? We talked about this, but our perverse, sinful heart typically, routinely feels better about itself, about us, if we've made others smaller by verbally putting them down. Do we sow the seeds of gossip and innuendo regarding others? Friends, do you and I, are we the whisperer? that we're fueling the fire of animus or negative thoughts towards others. You know, there's a time and a place, appropriately, in a holy way, in a helpful way, where you might tell me something about someone else. And I try to be very, very conscious about this. If I've spoken negative about someone else, or we've spoken negative about someone else, to stop and pray before we go on for that person. If we're talking negative about others and we're not praying for them, there's a pretty good chance that we're part of the problem, not part of the solution. So being very careful about what we're sharing and why we're sharing it and with who we're sharing it. Do we serve up the morsels of accusation charge and counter charge? You know, of course, this is the the dealings of the devil. You remember that Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. That's what he does. You know, when you sin and I sin, Satan takes that accusation before God. And that's why 1 John says we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus is our defense attorney in heaven. And when the enemy accuses us at the throne of heaven, our advocate is there to say that sin has been atoned for and covered. But you see, the enemy is always accusing. Do we play his role in our relationship with each other By accusing other people. That's the wrong side of the defense desk to be on. We're on the wrong side. Do we refuse to serve others as they need and we're able? Do you see someone in need that you could help? You could be part of sowing the seeds of unity and help. You know, by the way, when we serve meals to other families, the babies have been born and we're helping mom and dad out, or someone's been sick, you know, they feel blessed. When that person or that family shows up, do you know their hearts feel knit to you when we do that for each other? You are building the unity of the body of Christ when we serve each other in the ways we can. It's a great thing. Or how about this last one? Do we refuse to forgive and restore relationships? This is a huge one. Someone said something about you they shouldn't have. They did something they shouldn't have. Are you willing to forgive? Has God has forgiven you and restored your relationship? Or do you hold them like this the rest of their life? You sinned against me. I'm not going to trust you. I'm going to smile at you at church on Sunday morning with my hand out. You don't see it, but it's there. Don't get any closer than this. We are part of strife and discord if we refuse to forgive and be restored in those relationships where such restoration is possible. Paul says in Romans 12, As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Are we at peace, as far as it depends on us, with others? God wants us to have a sense of how big a deal this is. And so we've talked about the literary structure, etc. When Kathy was pregnant with our first daughter, Rachel, we were in a birthing class. And the nurse there is telling us about the pain our wife, talking to the men, of course, the pain our wife is going to be in in childbirth. And the nurse wants us to have some sense of what that's going to be like for her. So the nurse says, okay guys, I want all of you to grab your lip and squeeze it as hard as you can. And now keep squeezing it. Hard as you can. And she says, does that hurt? And we're like, yes, that hurts. And she says, good. Now rip it over the back of your head And you'll have some sense of the pain your wife will be in in childbirth. You see, we're squeezing her lip, and she's saying, do you get it? And we say, yes, yes, we're nodding her head, yes. And she says, you don't get it. You don't. You don't know what that pain is. And that's the thing for us on this issue that God wants us to get it. How vile, how absolutely from the pit of hell, Sowing, planting, leaving the seeds of discord and strife in the relationships of others, this thing really is. Tear your lip over the back of your head to get some sense how painful God says this is. When I was preparing this message, you know, Solomon says the end of a matter is better than the beginning. You know, I, I like starting series, and but I prefer ending them. And you know, you like to sort of end on a high note because it's kind of like the orchestra, you know, you're, you're coming up to the crashing of cymbals, right? The end of the story you're reading and it's up to the climax and you want this short denouement where everything's resolved. And, but it's that last message and I confess, as I was preparing for this, I, I thought, Lord, I, it just feels a little empty to me. And I think that's the point. I can't get behind this as easily, as willfully, as emotionally as I can the others. And I think God recognizes that about us and that's why He set this whole thing up Because he wants us to know at the end of the day, this little thing, this little seed I plant in your life or someone else's relationship, God says that seed is heinous. It's hateful. And he wants to change the way I see it and the way I think about this. You know, in the Sunday school, the Financial Peace University, Dave Ramsey says he wants you to feel pain. When you spend money, there wants to be the sense of isolation. I've lost that money. Well, God wants us to bring the sense of I feel it to this whole thing about sowing seeds of discord in others. You know, as Christians that have been around the block probably a few times, maybe, you know, we say and we know, God loves me. God loves you, right? God loves you. Jesus loves you. Uh, Jesus loves me. God loves me. God loves you. All singular, right? And that's true. Does God love you absolutely as you are in Christ, redeemed, future, glorified, ready to spend eternity, having a great time with you, each one of us singular? Absolutely, right? Gloriously, thankfully, yes. Uh, Is it just about me and God, though? It's just about you and God, you know, it's me and God and our happy little huddle, and isn't life grand? You know, it's not, is it, at the end of the day? Because God has always determined to glorify himself and to bless us in plurality. In relationship, not singularly. We're singularly significant and important, but God has always meant us to be part of a larger body, a bigger whole. It's never about just you. That's humbling, isn't it? It's never about just me. It's always about us. Always about us. This is because of the Trinity, by the way. You know, in the creation, when God says, I want to make someone something that reflects who I am, you know, and the Trinity is the model The Father and the Son and the Spirit, all harmoniously working and blessing each other. That's the model. So Adam, as a singular male, could never have reflected God in the way God meant his image to be represented on earth. Could never happen. Because God is a unity that's a plural element. He's a plurality that's a unity. And so mankind had to reflect that same truth that mankind, man is singular, and yet mankind, we know from the creation account, is male and female. There's plurality. So God has always meant that his glory in us would be reflected in plurality. So there's Adam, and there's Eve. And then, of course, subsequently, there's male and female. There's family, and there's extended family. There's The polis, whatever that political entity we're in, a city or a county, a state or a nation, God always meant that this would be the case. And ultimately for us too, there's the church. So God means, has always meant, has always intended that his own image would be on display in our humanity and it takes the collective for that to be realized. You know, John's gospel is probably the best place you can go in the Bible to read about this, and the passages I'm thinking about, Jesus says things like this, the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. And the Father delights to honor the Son, and the Son delights to honor the Father. And if you think about God in Trinity, you see that it's throughout the Bible. We say the word Trinity is not in the Bible, that's true. But the Trinity is seen throughout the Bible. So the Father commands creation, the Son carries it about, speaks the word, and who is it hovering? It's always the beginning. The Spirit of God is hovering over all that at the beginning of the creation. It's always the Trinity in union working together. The Father sends the Son, the Son dies for our sins, and He sends the Spirit. We pray to the Father in the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. It's always the Trinity. And so God means for the relationships you and I in, are in to be like those in the Trinity. And this is the deal. You know, the son never has to say to the father, I think you're shortchanging me. And the father never says to the son, Junior, you're out of line. And the spirit never says, I don't think I'm getting enough credit here. Because within the Trinity, each member is always determined and doing They're blessing each other and being blessed by the others. That's always what's going on. And that's exactly what God means for you and I to bring into the relationships we're in. Granted, there's sin in the earth. We have sin in our lives. This will never be carried about perfectly here. But that's the goal. Blessed and being blessed by those we're in relationship with. Reflecting the nature of the Trinity. When you and I argue with each other, when we're at odds with each other, when there's friction, there's disunity, we are blurring and marring the image of God on earth that he meant to be a reflection of his own glory. You see, we are less blessed than God means us to be, and God is less honored than he should be. When discord and strife are part of the norm of our relationships, the Trinity is the model. The points, as I'm thinking about this this morning too, and as I've thought about it through the week, uh, the points principally I want to make this morning has to do with the church. The things that we're saying, they apply in any of the relationships you and I would find ourselves in. But as you think about it this morning, I want to principally think about this in the context of the church. If God doesn't want us to sow the seeds of discourse, what does He want? He does not want us to sow the seeds of strife. What is he after? What's the antithesis of that? What is the positive as we looked at every other week? What's the positive God loves and God wants us to aim for? If you've got your Bible turned to Ephesians 4, I think this is probably the best passage that speaks singularly to what God's calling us to, not strife, not discord, but unity. When you read Ephesians, it's a great, it's a very, it's a typical prototypical Pauline epistle. And that means it divides nicely right in the middle. First three chapters are all theology. Second three chapters are all application. First three chapters, God's electing love has set me apart in His kindness in Christ forever. Got all the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies forever. God saved me when I was dead in my trespasses and sins. By grace I've been saved through faith. It's not of myself. God's appointed all these works, these good works for me to walk in. In chapter three, Paul's told me theologically, guess what? God always intended the church... Christ, in his crucifixion and resurrection, broke down the law, the wall that separated Jews from Gentiles, so that God could make one new man. Isn't that interesting? God broke down the wall that divided people so that people could be unified in Christ. That's chapter 3. He gets to chapter 4 and he begins the application. And he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In other words, appropriate to what God has done for you, is doing in you, has called you to, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and this is the catch, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, chapter 3 said this is what God's doing. He's He's building the church. Chapter 4 says there's a unity there that you need to maintain. God is after a unity, friends. That's the deal. If you look at verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Eager means hurrying, endeavoring, giving diligence. Does that describe your effort and mind towards unity in the body of Christ? That's, those are action words, aren't they? That, that requires work. Um, maintain, to attend to, to give attention to, to guard, to watch over. I'm hurrying to guard, to preserve this unity, this agreement, this camaraderie, this accord that is given to us by the Spirit and by virtue of our inclusion in the body of Christ. It's important to realize in this formula that you and I never create unity. You can't do it. God's done it. He says, I've given you this thing this spiritual union with each other, and my call to you is simply to maintain it. Like a garden, you're going to work at it. Just think of the Garden of Eden. It's a beautiful garden. Everything's there. You're just going to tend it. But that requires some work and some thoughtfulness. So the Spirit creates the unity. Jews and Gentiles are now one person in Christ. Christ has but one body. And by the way, in Ephesians 4, it says there's one Lord, one Spirit, one baptism. That's the whole thing. There's unity now. It used to be division. No, nope. Paul says it's all gone. Now you're called, whoever you are in the body, if you're a believer, you're called singularly to this union within the body of Christ, Christ's church. The maintenance of that, Paul says, is hard work. It requires diligence. This does not just happen. And you know that if you've been around at all as a Christian. You know this does not just happen because our sinful nature its like a weight Not just happen our feet. And if you're not swimming hard, it's pulling you down to the bottom. It does not just happen. Paul says you've got to be intentional about it. It requires, Paul said, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearing, diligence, attention, and guarding. And we are when we are less than careful, we tend to destroy the image of God in the plurality of the body of Christ. God's after unity. Because it reflects the Trinity. That's how God is glorified. It's how we are blessed. Now the outcome, if we pay attention to this unity we're called to maintain, Paul talks about what that leads to in Ephesians 4, down at verses 15 and 16. So Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together, by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So God says, when you and I work at this unity thing, at maintaining the unity God Himself provides, what happens is that every member of the body of Christ is blessing others and being blessed. And you and I grow up individually, but the body of Christ grows fully into the image Christ, God the Father and the Spirit, have always intended it to have. So the unity produces the growth in which everyone is doing their part, is contributing to the whole, blessed and being blessed. God is honored and we're built up. That's what happens when you and I work at maintaining unity. You know, occasionally, I had a conversation not long ago in which a friend says once left a church, and you know, if you talk to others about uh, past church experiences, and they'll say, I left for this reason, I left for that reason, whatever. Remember, in this conversation, it was about, I left because the church, a congregational model, would not uh, basically put someone out of fellowship, no matter what they did. And they said, I realized I couldn't say there, Stay there. You know, if a church isn't willing to practice church discipline, which is a requirement in the New Testament, you've become a club. You're not a church anymore. You're just a club. So he said, I, I realized for that reason I left. And you know, occasionally you'll, you'll talk to someone who says, you know, the church that I used to attend, they, they went wacky on this doctrine of, and then named the doctrine, whatever. Doctrinally, on something that was baseline, something that was foundational, that was important, the church took a hard left, and I said, I am not going there. Some issue of orthodoxy was at stake and they've said, I'm not going there. But you know what? Those departures from local churches, they're about this big on the percentage. They're rare. They're not the normal reason people leave churches. You know why people leave churches? You know the normal reasons people leave churches? Because you hurt my feelings. Because there's been a personal rupture in my relationship with someone else in the church. That's the normal reason. Uh, you spoke ill of me in a way I wish you hadn't have. Um There's a private feud and I'm not going to forgive you. There's a disagreement. The church leaders just don't get it. You know, I know where this church should be going and they don't get it. And so I'm leaving over that. How about this one? I'm leaving because the carpet picked for the new church isn't the color I wanted. I wonder if that could ever happen to us. I wonder if the things that we threw away from that new building, I wonder if we should have kept them. I wonder if we lost anybody over that. You see where this goes. Guys, it's usually not orthodoxy. It's not orthopraxy. That's usually the reason we leave a church and leave a fellowship that we've invested in and that's invested in us. It's usually some little seed of discord and strife. And we're not big enough, that is, we're not humble enough. We're not biblical enough. We're not obedient enough to keep going when it's hard to do so. You know... This church is not immune to any of this. None of it. We are not. I am not. You are not immune to any of this. And we get chances to practice this. Are we willing to forgive? Are we willing to forget and go on? Are we willing to stop sowing the seeds of discord? Are we willing to invest in the lives of others in hard, difficult ways? Because that's what it takes. That's what God's after. God hates strife among brothers, and Jesus hates strife in the church. You know, we've been just, just been given a great thing, a building, right? We've been, some of us have been here 17 years. You know how long we've prayed for a building? 17 years. That's a big deal. you know the church, no, no church starts on a building. A building is not a church. We know that, right? A building is not a church. It's convenient to say the church, referring to the building, but that building is not the church, right? The church, the body of Christ, is not a building, it's not a structure, it's not limited in space and time, it's the body of Christ, it's we, it's plurality, it's you and me, right? That's the church. If you were given a a, a great cathedral and your body is characterized by strife, that'd be a loss. You know, you read through Proverbs again, just gone through Proverbs. Maybe that's obvious in our Bible survey class. Uh, you know, better to have a morsel than feasting and strife. You know, better contentment in a home than uh, the dripping wife on the corner of the roof. Sorry, ladies, you know. Strife, a little with peace is better, God says, than a lot with disunity. Disunity. The church is not a building, the church is not a program, the church is not the bank account, the church is us. And the unity God wants has to do about the way you and I treat each other. So God forbid the day when this church would ever be characterized by anything other than the way we worship God thoughtfully with our lives and the way we choose to treat each other. If we lose that, we've lost the whole thing. We have Quit hating the thing God hates and loving the thing God loves when people are less important than places and things. So you can, God will take you a long way down the road if you'll be committed to loving others. That means the unlovely, by the way. You wouldn't believe this, but there are times that I am unlovely. I know that's hard to believe, but talk to my wife. And you know what? I'll bet there are times that you're less than lovable too. And so if this thing works, that means we're really, not talk is cheap, we're really committed to doing what the Bible says. To forgiving and forgetting and going forward and praying for and serving each other. Jesus said, by this all people will know you, that you're following me. He could have put a hundred things in here, a thousand, a million, right? He just says one. They'll know that you're mine. They'll know that you're following me by the love you have for each other. This isn't even evangelism. By the way, if someone came and visited our church, would they want in this family anyway? You know what I'm saying? If you're practicing evangelism and you're sharing the gospel with someone at work and you bring them to their church, would they say, I want to become a Christian because I love what I see going on between the folks in your church? Or would they say... No thanks. The bar scene is better. Or whatever. Are we characterized by loving each other? Because that's what Jesus said would characterize us as his followers. Wind down here. Psalm 133 is a great, great, very brief psalm on this subject. Listen to what David said. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. When mem- or when husbands and wives get along or when family members bless each other, or when members of the church love and serve and forgive and pray for each other. How good and pleasant it is. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. If you say pouring oil on my head running down my neck sounds good, it does not sound good. It sounds gross. I like to have... Unoily hair. How about you? Or you've ruined my shirt. What are you thinking? So we put this back in context, right? And we say Aaron's the high priest. So the oil here is God's ultimate blessing. And he pours it on Aaron's head and in doing so he says, Aaron, you're my man. You're the only one in all the nation that gets to stand in my presence and see me. So this thing about this unity in relationship here, last time we talked about this, we said the context was the violence of the righteous. We were willing to strike each other verbally in love. Do you remember that? David said, that's like oil on the head. Well, here he says, for you and I to dwell together in unity, the kind of loving service unity that God meant, he said, guys, it's like the best blessing God can give you. It doesn't get any better. There's only one high priest. There's only one person singularly taken out of the whole nation of Israel for this honor and this privilege. Oil poured out. He's the guy that sees God. And David said, that's how cool, that's how good, that's how valuable it is, this blessing of living with others in unity, in the kind of unity God always meant us to have. Whether that's your marriage, that's your family, that's your neighborhood. Ultimately, of course, for us, it's the church. It's the body of Christ. That's how cool it is. That's how desirable it is. He finishes us. It's like the dew of Hermon. Hermon's a mountain right up there in the north of Israel. The dew that falls on the mountains of Zion, that's where God has commanded blessing life forevermore. Uh, you know, the mountain there in a desert area, it's the place that collects clouds and rain. And Guys, if you're in a desert area, rain's a big deal. I think in southwestern Kansas here. Rain's a big deal. So Mount Hermon, it's the place where the clouds collect and it rains. And I'm in a part of the world where I need rain desperately. Well, my fellowship with you, it's like that rain that I've got to have or my life ends. And here even more so, it's the dew. It's cool enough that the moisture from the clouds on the mountain condenses in the desert wastes at the bottom and it keeps them alive. They wouldn't be alive otherwise. David said this fellowship that you and I are called to, it's life-preserving. It's life-giving. It's like the best blessing you could ever have. It's like the thunder and the rainstorm when it's been dry and the ground is parched. And you're a farmer just wondering, do I have a hope? And there it is, the rain comes out. You say, oh man, that's just what I needed. That's, God says through David, that's the value of living together in harmony with others. Do you know the, uh, the people you're sitting with this morning, most at least, and the folks we hang out with a lot, do you know you're going to be with them forever? Forever's a long, long, long time. You know, now would be a good time to work at getting along with each other, wouldn't it? To appreciating each other. Because we're going to be seeing each other forever. And I don't want any memories of you where I say, oh man, I, I wronged him back then. I don't know what our memories in heaven are going to be like. We're going to, we're going to cry. There's a point where the tears are cut off, right? But until that point, until those tears are cut off, that's at the very end of the Bible, I suspect there's going to be some tears at the judgment seat of Christ when Jesus reveals those things in our life that weren't up to spec, right? Maybe those unconfessed sins, those ways in which we didn't do what he wanted us to. We're going to see the fruit of some of that. It's... It's going to unmake us, and then it's going to make us fully, right? It's going, to, it's going to clear the record, and everything's going to be out in the open, nothing to hide, and now we can start eternity, right? Fresh. We're forgiven now. By the way, don't let me, don't let me end on a note in which you're not hearing what I'm saying. Um, when we get into heaven, it's all good, right? Right? But God clears our record of that judgment seat and He weighs our life, right? That's what 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5 talk about. So, why not enter heaven loving the way we treated each other and enjoying the relationships we had that are now eternal in nature? This would be a good time to start that. God's work of restoration always includes the regaining of corporate Corporate, plural, peace and blessing. Your marriage, the church, the body of Christ cannot reflect the image of God as we're intended to apart from embracing each other consciously, volitionally. And to the degree that we bring with us, that we spread strife in our marriages, in our families, in the church, whatever our corner of the world is, we end up, whether we want to say it or not, whether we recognize it or not in the moment, we're part of the work of the devil in destroying the very things God intends to build up. That's just not the side of the game. That's not the team we want to be playing on. So do my words and do my interactions with others, do they promote unity in marriages? Do they encourage patience and forbearance towards others? And do they call others to relational faithfulness? That's the thing God loves. Hate sowing discord loves covenant faithfulness and kindness. The devil is sowing the seeds of strife and discord. And that's been going on in the world ever since. That's part and parcel of the fall. Now, you and I follow the second and the final Adam. That's Jesus' role, right? Paul says that clearly. He's the second and he's the final Adam. And in his work on the cross, in his crucifixion and resurrection, out of that, He's Adam wounded in the garden, right? God put him to sleep in the crucifixion to cover our sins. And God was taking out of him. And in fact, is still taking out of Jesus' death and resurrection, if you will, today. Men and women, boys and girls, that are part of his body, his bride, the new Eve, the church. And we want to be part of seeing that bride, that church that Jesus loved and died for, built up in all the ways God intends so may god give us repentance conviction and grace adequate to refuse the seeds of strife and to embrace our high call to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace by the way in closing the first element of strife or discord you and i need to settle is always with god always with god if you don't know that your sins are forgiven in Christ, if you don't know that God is your Father and Jesus is your Savior, the first element of strife and discord to take care of is your relationship with God. And that's as simple as saying, Lord Jesus, thank you for your death on the cross for my sins. And I want that. And I want to be restored to you. And I accept that gift and call upon your name. And after that, it's this intentional work of saying, God, I sinned, I confess that to you, I want to be cleansed. Or my brother or my sister, I'm sorry for the way I offended you or treated you or didn't serve you, will you forgive me? And can we go down the road together? So I hope at the culmination of this series, the series, the big picture is, Lord, we want to hate what you hate and we want to love what you love. And the last thing on God's lips in this regard was not sowing strife and discord among each other, but rather working towards this unity of faith that glorifies Him and blesses us. Father, thanks for the power of Your Word. And we trust, Lord, that Your Spirit is at work to make that real to us in the ways that matter. Father, thank You that You have set Your eternal love on us. Lord Jesus, that our sins are once and for all entirely covered by Your atoning sacrifice. And Lord, that the barrier that separated men and women... Jews and Gentiles, Lord, any of us has been broken down in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And Lord, would you help us to maintain that unity, to be seen as Christ's disciples by the love we share with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.